are listening to Ohio versus the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode nine, Ohio versus the Sunshine State. Today we're going to be talking about Florida. We'll talk about how an Ohioan became known as the father of modern Florida. And I'm not going to be bashing Florida on this show. It's a popular thing for people to do. So let's just get that stuff out of the way. Florida, God's little waiting room, America's second chance state. And of course, all those wacky news stories that start with the words, a Florida man. 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 So, so many good ones. Uh, but as a Midwesterner, I've been to Florida a lot. New Year's Eve, it's Christmas. Uh, we spend them in the Sunshine State. I've done a lot of research for this episode while I was on the beach in Marco Island. Edited a lot of it Oceanside when I was in Fort Myers Beach. Miss Ohio v. The World and I would love to become snowbirds later in life. This episode tells the story of how Henry Flagler of Cleveland, Ohio, one of the founders of Standard Oil, the most successful company in America in the 19th and early 20th century, becomes known as the father of modern Florida. It's really a sequel episode to our 2019 show about John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. It's called Ohio vs. Wealth. You can go back and listen to it. Ohio View the World's part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Uh, and you can go to evergreenpodcast.com, listen to all our previous 80-some episodes. You can find that one from 2019, one of our most listened to shows about John D. Rockefeller. There's a link in the show notes to our page on Evergreen. And you can always just go to our show's website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com. The subject of our show today, Cleveland, Ohio's Henry Flagler, he built Florida from one of the three most unpopulated states in the country, uninhabitable, really, to one of the top 20 economies in the world. But in true boom-bust Florida style, we'll also look at the Florida that Flagler built that ended up possibly sparking the Great Depression. We'll dive into the wild and crazy roaring 20s in Florida. Everyone's getting rich. Prohibition not enforced. Swimsuits are getting skimpy. And then it all got washed away. From the keys to the panhandle, from Miami Beach to Alligator Alley, it's episode 9, Ohio vs. Sunshine State. Henry Flagler would go on to become one of the richest men in 19th century America. He was a robber baron, a captain of industry, born out of the Gilded Age. But he was not born into money. In 1830s, born to a reverend father in Hopewell, New York, near the fine city of Kennedigua in the Finger Lakes region of western New York, nor was he highly educated. At 14, after finishing 8th grade, he moved to Bellevue, Ohio, in northern Ohio, just south of Sandusky and Lake Erie. So how does this kid become one of the smartest and richest businessmen in the world? We asked Florida historian with the History Miami Museum, Dr. Paul George. I don't think anybody knows more about South Florida than this man. We asked Dr. George... How does Henry Flagler become known as the father of modern Florida? And is it really true that he declines to have the city of Miami named after him around the turn of the century? Flagler, who was introduced to Florida at the end of the 1870s on sort of a brief honeymoon vacation, and then he embraces Florida, is, uh, I guess, quasi-retired, uh, gets antsy like 
the great entrepreneurs always do and decides to get into a second career and does this with railroads and hotel accommodations. And so he was developing areas in terms of residential communities, tourism, population growth that hadn't been there before. Thus, we give him that sort of appellation, the father of Florida, clearly the Florida of the East Coast of the peninsula. Uh, it's true. It's a, it's a very interesting story. And he was an older gentleman at that time. I mean, he died at 83. For me today, equivalent to about 100. Yeah. And he was still active up until his death. When somebody said, Mr. Flagler, we're moving now toward incorporation of this little city on the Miami River. I'd like to call it Flagler. And he allegedly claimed, don't name it for me. Like we said, at age 14, he moves to Ohio. And Henry Flagler takes a job at a grain store run by his cousins in Bellevue. He's earning $5 a month plus room and board. And Henry becomes a partner in the business run by his cousin Dan Harkness in about 1852. Sets up a future in which Henry would align himself with the right people. The Harkness family, very wealthy. He marries a distant cousin, Mary Harkness, and he marries into money. It's a great way to become rich, by the way. And as the Civil War begins, Flagler decides to start a business in Saginaw, Michigan. A salt mining company because salt was so important in preserving food uh, for U.S. soldiers during the war you know, in these far-flung regions of the country. But when the war ends, so does his business. Friend of the show and trustee at the excellent Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland, Kevin Callahan joins the program again to talk about Henry Flagler's big swing and miss in business in his early 30s. Henry Flagler marries uh, Mary Harkness in 1852. They come from a very prominent family, which is important, um, and really helps uh, Henry Flagler, as we'll see. And in 1862, Flagler and his brother-in-law, uh, Barney York, found the Flagler York Salt Company in Saginaw, Michigan. And this company struggles during the Civil War when demand for salt plummets. So Henry Flagler was virtually bankrupt. Henry Flagler had to close this company down, and now he owes $50,000 of borrowed money to his father-in-law, Dan Harkness. In 1866, Flagler returns to Bellevue, Ohio and enters the family business, the Harkness Grain Company. But even after failing in business, Henry Flagler's charmed life continues. He goes back to work as a commission agent for the Harkness Grain Company. He meets another young commission agent from Cleveland named John D. Rockefeller. John D. is working for a company called Hewitt and Tuttle at the time, a company that Rockefeller would soon leave after they refused to give him a raise. But something else was going on in post-war Cleveland. It was becoming America's center for oil refining. Oil was the main source of lighting at this time, and the discovery of oil in western Pennsylvania at Titusville in 1859, it sparked a new giant industry that still is one of the most important industries in the world today, oil and gas. As we said, this episode's a sequel to our 2019 episode on Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller called Ohio vs. Wealth. The entire history of this Pennsylvania and Ohio oil boom, it's recapped in that episode, but Flagler and Rockefeller become fast friends, and although they have very different personalities, they complement each other. Flagler, the outgoing type, Rockefeller, the introvert. We asked Kevin Callahan from the Western Reserve Historical Society to talk about John D. Rockefeller and Henry Flagler and how they met up. Yeah, they did. Uh, John D. worked uh, also in the um, grain business here in Cleveland. He was a commission agent for Hewlett and, and Tuttle. And they, had, uh, they were also in the grain business. So John D. was in Bellevue often visiting uh, with Henry uh, Flagler. But they got along great. Flagler was nine and a half years older than John D. But he was quick smiling, gregarious, and unlike uh, John D., who was bookish and kind of dour. But they got along terrific, and they uh, had a great zeal for business, and they were both equally very ambitious. 
As we welcome our third and final guest, it's another very knowledgeable person when it comes to Henry Flagler and Florida history, author and professor of history Leslie Keyes from Flagler University in St. Augustine, Florida joins us. Leslie got her start in the Ohio State Historic Preservation Office. She worked in Dayton for years. She still does really important historic preservation work today in Florida, but she also works in one of America's most historic cities, St. Augustine. Just south of Jacksonville, it's the oldest city in the U.S., founded by the Spanish in the mid-16th century, the 1500s. But as the city would become Flagler's base of operations, we wanted to know the history of the city and of Florida, which was a Spanish possession until exactly 200 years ago when it was purchased by the United States government. We like to say that St. Augustine is the oldest continuously occupied settlement. And we do that um, in that there are other places in the U.S. where people came and for whatever reason didn't stay. So St. Augustine was founded in the midst of a hurricane on September 8th of 1565. And since it was a Spanish settlement, that's also the first place in the United States where we had Catholic mass said. It was a multicultural population from the beginning. We had free and enslaved Africans. We ended up with Canary Islanders and Greeks and Portuguese as well, and Irish. We have an Irish Celtic festival and as well as the Spanish. Just to pay homage to the other city in Florida, Pensacola was actually founded in 1559, but did not stay. It was wiped out in a hurricane. This is actually the 200th anniversary of Florida becoming a United States territory. So 2021, uh, we've been having activities in both St. Augustine and Pensacola and at the State House in Tallahassee to commemorate. As Cleveland became the center of oil refining in the United States, Rockefeller transitioned his business into oil and he decides to go all in. And that's where Henry Flagler and his rich in-laws, the Harknesses, come in. They front the money and get themselves and Flagler each a 25% stake in Rockefeller's new oil refining company in 1867. Their office in downtown Cleveland become the Standard Oil Company, one of the most successful businesses in world history. And it all started right here in the Buckeye State. In 1867, John D. decides to start his own oil company with the chemist and inventor Samuel Andrews. But they need capital. So Rockefeller uh, approaches Flagler and Harkness to invest. Harkness puts in $100,000, which is about a million nine today, so long as Henry Flagler is a partner in the Standard Oil Company. So they start this company and they incorporate uh, with a million dollars. Shares were 100 each. Rockefeller gets 2.6 million shares and Flagler and, and the Harknesses uh, get 1.6 million. Flagler, because of his familiarity with uh, railroad rebates, he really is the brains here and he comes in and he's able to initially uh, to start to negotiate a 15% discount on all Standard Oil shipments. And this rebate puts Standard Oil in a position to severely undercut the other oil refineries and allows Standard Oil to start taking control of the oil industry. Flagler's credited with being the brains behind the operation and the secret to the success of Standard Oil. He actually is the one who drafted the incorporation papers in 1870. It's a simple one-page document. At the start of the decade, Standard Oil was responsible for 10% of the oil refining in the United States. They go after the Pennsylvania refiners and buy them out. Just two years after Flagler drafts those articles of organization, they would complete what's known as the Cleveland Massacre. In 1872, Flagler and Rockefeller would buy 22 of the 26 oil refineries in Cleveland. 
and by the end of the decade, they would control 90% of the oil refining. John Dee and Henry Flagler are filthy rich. They both live in the prestigious Millionaire's Row on Euclid Avenue in Cleveland. There's few people that know more about Millionaire's Row and its denizens than our guest Kevin Callahan. He notes that it's Flagler that came up with the idea for the Standard Oil Trust. The trust would allow them to get around much tighter corporation laws in the 1800s. An Ohio company like Standard couldn't own and operate land and business outside of the Buckeye State. But Flagner found a way around that with his giant Standard Oil Trust. He's the one who got the huge rebates and kickbacks from the railroads that allow them to crush the competition and sell their product at a very reduced rate to their competitors. All these ideas were born out of John D. and Henry Flagler's walks to work. They would walk from Millionaire's Row on the near east side of Cleveland to their downtown office almost every day. Kevin Callahan talks about their famous daily walk to work. They both worked right at West 9th and uh, Superior in the Sexton building, and they would um, leave at 5 o'clock and walk home together. And that's a long walk. John D. lived at uh, almost 40th and Euclid, so that's a long walk. It's probably two or three miles, I bet. And they would be together and talking about ideas and plans, and then they would walk to work together the next day. By the 1880s, Flagler and Rockefeller have conquered the oil industry. They established their monopoly, and although they would actually eventually have to break up the business, they'd actually make more money after the Supreme Court rules against them in an antitrust suit. In Ohio, for example, they became Sohio, Standard Oil of Ohio. If you're my age or older, you remember a lot of Sohio stations here. Those were all sold to BP. Standard of California became Chevron. Standard of New York and New Jersey combined later to make ExxonMobil. Standard of Indiana became Amico. On and on. Kevin tells us about the move of Standard as they go from Ohio and they move the offices to New York City. We ask why they did that and how it opened them to a world of capital and shipping globally that caused an explosion of wealth for our subject, Henry Flagler. They moved in 1885. They need capital. And, and Cleveland just didn't have, uh, they'd already been to the banks and, and really done, uh, they borrowed from every bank uh, here in town and they needed really big money. So they move Standard Oil to 26 Broadway to the headquarters there in 1885. By this time, John D. Rockefeller's net worth is estimated to be $150 million, and uh, Henry Flagler was about $100 million. So they are, by this time, very wealthy. Henry Flagler is no longer going to work every day. He's still involved big picture-wise, but he's retired, and it's then he becomes interested in Florida. But the Florida of the 1880s when Flagler comes to town is much different than the state we recognize today of nearly 22 million Americans, a couple million short of being twice the size of Ohio at about 12 million. But Florida of 1880 is the second smallest population east of the Mississippi, only in front of Delaware. Considerably less people than Vermont, it's nearly three times smaller than West Virginia. The Seminole Wars of the earlier part of the century, with men like Andrew Jackson capturing Pensacola, and it wiped out a sizable Native American population in the territory, and then became a state in 1845. We asked our guest Leslie Keyes about why was Florida so uninhabitable in the majority of the 19th century. And her stat that Key West was the largest city throughout the century, just crazy to me. South of Georgia, but it was the international boundary between the U.S., you know, Georgia and the northern colonies and Spanish Florida. When that stops being an international boundary, all of a sudden people are curious. And St. Augustine has been the capital of the entire peninsula for hundreds of years by that point. So, for example, in 1827, you have Ralph Waldo Emerson coming down from New England because he also had tuberculosis. And he wrote a poem about the place and he loved it. And he spent several weeks down there and he went back home and he was much better. He also befriended um, Prince Achille Murat, Napoleon's nephew, 
who was also in town. So it's been a tourist haven, quite honestly, for 200 years. And that's the other piece we're celebrating is 200 years of tourism. Also, Florida's ties were really to Havana, which was the capital of Spain's New World Holdings. So much more cultural orientation. It is very swampy and mosquito infested and you have all those wonderful things like alligators everywhere. So people were surveying what's now the state by boat. And so they were going down the coast so they could go into the protected water at St. Augustine, or they would go all the way down and around the peninsula and up to Pensacola. And there were certainly um, native populations on all of those waterways, Tampa, Fort Myers, East Coast, Cape Canaveral, but you didn't have very many other European settlers. Now, the statistic that I like to use when I teach Florida history is you have about 3,000 people in St. Augustine, you have about half of that in Pensacola, and then another result of becoming part of the United States, in 1822, when Key West is founded, by 1830, it becomes the largest city by population <laughs> by having about 6,000 people. But it also really stayed the largest city in Florida by population until 1890. That's crazy. When Jacksonville becomes the most populous. And then that, Jacksonville stays that way until after World War II. When Miami, and I'm looking at Dade County too, yeah. becomes the biggest city in the state, and it still is. Henry Flagler finally comes to Florida for the first time for the same reason a lot of people came to Florida back in the 1870s and 1880s. It was for lungers people with a touch of consumption, TB, tuberculosis. His wife was sick and doctors didn't have a cure other than being in warm, moist climates that seemed to alleviate some of the symptoms. But Flagler was unimpressed with his stay in Jacksonville in Northeast Florida. It was difficult to get there by rail, it's poor, it's unpopulated, but he also sees the potential. Henry Flagler was about to become one of the greatest second acts in American history after an impressive first act as an oil baron. I've got to kind of picture the South at the end of Reconstruction. So he comes in February of 1878 to Jacksonville, stays at the St. James Hotel, which is still standing and is actually the Jacksonville City Hall these days. I came with his first wife, Mary Harkness Flagler. She had been diagnosed with consumption, which today is tuberculosis. And he had a minor throat infection. So they got out of the cold North and were told to come to the warm, moist air in Florida. When in Jacksonville, they took an excursion uh, by steamship on the St. John's River and then overland 18 miles from the St. John's into St. Augustine. The city had been occupied by Union troops throughout the Civil War and during Reconstruction, tiny little town and had really not recovered from that economic downturn yet. So yes, it was not a very impressive place. He did go back home and on the way said, yes, he was unimpressed and that's probably a kind way to put it. He came back in 1883, very different situation in 1882. And so Flagler, who actually Rockefeller credits with being the brains behind the operation, stepped away after 15 years of turning it into a very successful company 
and he's still on the board. He's still there for management decisions, but he joins with Henry Plant to develop the southernmost frontier of the United States. What we all know now is Florida Peninsula from Orlando South. And that's really what brought Flagler back. He came in 1883. Um, Mary Flagler had passed away of tuberculosis. He had remarried, came with the Rockefellers. They also came in the winters of 84. And then 85 is when he bought the first property there, which is the site for the Hotel Ponce de Leon in St. Augustine. His wife, Mary Harkness, dies of tuberculosis in 1881. He remarries in 1883, and that marriage would be troubled to say the least. He takes his second wife to St. Augustine, and they decide basically he moves to Florida. Flagler begins changing when he moves to Florida. No longer under Rockefeller's watchful and pious influence, he starts spending, he starts entertaining, he starts drinking. Kevin Callahan takes us through the story of Flagler and his three wives. So he marries uh, Mary Harkness and she gets sick. She uh, dies in about 1881 and his caregiver was a woman by the name of Alice Shords, uh, Ida Alice Shords, and she, so he marries her in 1883, but within a short period of time, she starts to display some, some signs of instability and kind of insane. By this time, they're living in Florida, goes down to Florida, and he, he gets a law passed by the state legislature that makes insanity grounds for divorce. And so uh, he puts her into an institution, and 10 days later, he marries a young girl by the name of Mary Lily Kennan. He's 64 years old. He marries, uh, she comes from a great Southern family, and she marries, and they uh, uh, live a, a wonderful life. But by this time, to uh, impress her, he buys a 160-foot yacht for her and, and jewelry in and in a large estate called Whitehall. But Florida's still a swampy, bug, and gator-infested forest at this time. There's still beaches, and there's some small cities like St. Augustine and Jacksonville that have some potential. Flagler decides to go all in on the Sunshine State. He's got a vision. And that first vision is to make the state accessible to the rest of the country. That's pretty key. As Leslie will explain, the railroads are very few and they're inadequate. Flagler, with all his experience with the railroads from negotiating and scheming with them on behalf of Standard, he starts the Florida East Coast Railroad. He's going to build tracks and cities along the Atlantic coast with the goal of reaching all the way down to the most populous city in Florida, Key West. He did something that maybe now we don't think of as terribly extraordinary, but there were lots of little independent railroads that predated Flagler coming into Florida. But for whatever reason, um, they didn't use the same gauge on the track. Yeah. I liken it these days to the phase that we all went through on our cell phones where you couldn't interchangeably plug in your chargers, you know, really? Um, but that was a big deal. And so as Flagler is watching railroads take off across the Northeast, we've completed the Transcontinental Railroad during the Civil War, so we can go across this country. We're now coming South. But when you got into Florida, you couldn't go anywhere. You had to literally change trains and tracks and all that. So one of his first things to do was recognize that if he's gonna develop these resort hotels because leisure and vacation was a thing at this point, then he needed to standardize the gauge on the trains. And that is really what he did. So he bought a lot of those small railroads and he can, then created the Florida East Coast Railway all the way down, ultimately 1912 to the Florida Keys and they linked his resorts. So it was a, a very smart thing to do. You could go, you could get on a beautiful Pullman car train in New York and 
leisurely be in St. Augustine 24 hours later, you know, yeah. as opposed to two weeks over land or by unstable boat because of the weather. Flackler sets up his operation in the ancient city of St. Augustine. And it's here that he builds a resort that would change the history of Florida. The famous Ponce de Leon Hotel. Named after the Spanish conquistador who first visited Florida, he charted the coastline and was ultimately killed by natives in 1521. There's no real evidence, like in popular myth, that he was in Florida looking for the Fountain of Youth. The Ponce, as it was called, which our guest Leslie Keyes wrote a great book about called the Hotel Ponce de Leon, the Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Flagler's Gilded Age Palace, published back in 2015. But in 1885, Flagler begins construction on one of the most beautiful buildings in our country's history. It still stands today. With Flagler being from the Midwest and pretty big in the Northeast, this project attracts eyeballs and attracts media attention. The Ponce is going to put Florida on the map. He hires some incredibly talented people to help build and design this giant resort hotel in the Spanish architecture style, that's so prevalent throughout not just the old city of St. Augustine, but really all of Florida, even today. The New York Times certainly covered virtually everything. The New York newspapers would have covered everything that Standard Oil was doing. So they also then began to cover what Standard Oil partners were doing. So as Henry Flagler has bought this piece of ground in this strange little town in a strange little place that hardly anybody knows about, they are literally writing articles about the construction of the Hotel Ponce de Leon. Now, he also hired a photographer and a painter, William Henry Jackson and Thomas Moran, who had been employed by the United States government to visually describe what became the Western parks. And keep in mind, again, this is the national park system is beginning at the same time. And so they also then in images, presented this. So you had lithographs being printed in papers and photographs. Um, everybody read a daily newspaper. It was the social media of the day. And so people really did track this. Louis Comfort Tiffany was a painter. There's a pretty famous painting of the fort that he did. And this is at the beginning of his glass making and it's window glass making. Tom Edison was doing some electricity and he becomes actually famous in Florida right away because he electrifies the bait and kills this giant shark that everybody had been worried about. I'm not kidding. <laughs> you pull this phenomenal team of people together and it, it does send out a pretty significant vibe. We'll put some photos of the Hotel Ponce de Leon on our Facebook page and Instagram. You can follow us on Instagram at Ohio V the World Podcast. We're pretty active on, on both Facebook and Instagram and, and always pictures and videos up there that you can watch. Flagler had a vacation at the finest resorts in the East Coast, and he knew what him and all his rich friends wanted, and the Ponce took over two years to build, and it had all of them. This is 135 years ago, and it still has a lot of modern amenities that we're used to now. Leslie Keyes, who worked on the historic preservation on the Ponce for years as a professor at Flagler College, the Ponce is actually now the home of Flagler College, but this hotel's amazing looking. Spanish colonial revival style. It's a giant castle. I can't wait to go see it. And Leslie Keyes tells us about Flagler's landmark resort that changed the landscape of the Sunshine State. It was written by lots of newspaper as the most exotic resort in the world. Now, I'm not sure how we defined world at that time, but <laughs> certainly was in the country. Keep in mind, even though electricity and indoor plumbing had been created, invented, very few people in the country had any of that. So this resort and Flagler is willing to spare no expense 
and he says, I want it to be the most convenient, comfortable, modern resort we can make it. So Edison, we have 4,000 electric light bulbs and the largest steam powered power plant anywhere. You have um, Otis elevators, and we still have Otis elevators in the building. Now, obviously, the cars have been changed, and they're no longer water-driven, but they're still, Otis still maintains the elevators. Uh, you had running water, and they took the water out of the aquifer, Florida aquifer, and it comes out, and it's nice and smells like rotten eggs because it's so high in sulfur content. So they ran the water through four fountains, and as it processed through the pipes and the fountains, it took the impurities out and the minerals. And from there, 8 million gallons of water were stored in the 265-foot-tall towers at the top of the ponds. Laundry service, Western Union, telegraph office, furniture and wall-to-wall -wall carpeting and chandeliers and ceiling, you know, murals painted on canvas in Paris and shipped over. I mean, any fantasy pretty much that you could imagine in a hotel was there. As Kevin Callahan told us earlier, Flagler and his third wife, Mary Lily Kennan, moved into a beautiful home. Flagler built in, in Palm Beach, which is south of St. Augustine on the Atlantic side. He built Whitehall. The East Coast Railroad made Palm Beach the next big city in Florida. And now this Whitehall that he built is actually the beautiful Flagler Museum. But Flagler was not the only Ohio connection that was responsible for building modern Florida. Two other families that had slight connections to Flagler and Rockefeller began buying up land along the Miami River in South Florida. Julia Tuttle and Mary Brickle are the two mothers of Miami. The city wouldn't be founded until 1896 when Flagler's Railroad finally came south, but the Tuttles and the Brickles were also from Cleveland, Ohio. Our guest, Dr. Paul George from the History Miami Museum, such fun talking with him, we asked him if it was just a coincidence that the other two important early developers in South Florida were Clevelanders. It's an interesting connection, and when you look at the weather in Cleveland, say in early March, when Julia Tuttle first came to Miami in 1875, <laughs> second week of March, and you look at the weather in Miami, I mean, March is one of the most splendid months in Miami that you'll find anywhere. So I, I can understand, you know, the weather connection, but it's, it's just happenstance. Julia's parents were elderly folks homesteading in a portion of today's greater Miami. When she came down to visit them, she was a young mom and wife at the time. The Brickles are soldier of fortune types. Um, Bill Brickle had been born in Steubenville, Ohio in the early 1800s, was at the California Gold Rush, was at the Australia Gold Rush, meets Mary Balmer, who becomes his wife in Australia. They journey back to his native Ohio. She was from England. They journey back to his native Ohio. They raise a large family. They set out for Miami at the outset of the 1870s. He arrived with Julia's father. Uh, in early January of 1871, and then uh, uh, Mary Brickle began coming down here then in the early 1870s. They became land rich. They snapped up land for a song on the south bank of the river all the way through today's Brickle Avenue neighborhood, which is a fabulous neighborhood, and Little Havana. Julia was so moved by Miami and her visits that uh, she vowed somewhere along the way to move down here. Her husband died in the 1880s. She lived on fashionable Fairmount Avenue in Cleveland, so they were really upscale at one point. She buys essentially downtown, the future downtown Miami in 1887. I, we don't know what the sum was. I've been to her probate file decades ago and never found 
as to what the price was. But so she's land rich on the North Bank. The Brickles are land rich on the South Bank. Julia Tuttle had tried to get Flagler to buy some of her land for his railroad. This town, Miami, was just beginning to take shape. But Julia Tuttle was not able to talk Flagler into it and buying up some of her land to extend the railroad. But there's a huge freeze in Florida, the Great Freeze of 1894. Flagler's spending a lot of time in his new paradise in Palm Beach, but the freeze went as far south as Palm Beach and killed all the crops and citrus stuff down there. Miami's so far south, it's, it's untouched. Julia decides to send Flagler a package that would change his mind. These two incredible businesswomen sold Flagler on this land on the Miami River that would become one of America's great cities. Julia sort of parlayed her connection with people who knew Flagler and were even privy to Flagler and to try to entice him to bring his railroad south of Miami. It had stopped in 1894 in West Palm Beach, a town that he had created as a company town. While across the lake, Lake Worth from West Palm Beach is Palm Beach, which he created as kind of like a new port for the winter. The Gilded Age wealthy would come down here in the winter who might have summered up in Newport, Rhode Island. She held out uh, the enticement of half of her land if he'd move his railroad down. And he, he, he didn't hurry about that. Um, we know from letters in his organization that he was planning to build, if you can imagine this, in the early 1890s. I've seen the, I've read the letters. I've written an article about it about 20 or 30 years ago, planning to move his railroad down to Key West, which meant that technologically speaking, he was going to do something nobody had ever done before. For example, build, among other things, a seven mile bridge. Yeah. Yeah, how do you do this at the outset of the 1900s, technologically speaking? So uh, there were a couple of great freezes in Florida that really wiped out citrus and other crops as far south as today's Palm Beach County, but didn't hit Miami. Julia Tuttle used that as her trump card, sending these undamaged orange blossoms through one of his top lieutenants, James Ingram, to him as evidence that, hey, this place could be a winter resort. Hey, this place would be great for agriculture, even in the winter. He decides to sort of revisit her earlier offers. He comes down in late February of 1895. The Brickles, especially led by Mary, who was a very astute businesswoman, to further entice Flagler, said, listen, we'll give you a few hundred acres on the south bank of the river, which potentially was choice land, too. So that's thrown into the deal. It's contractually written up in October of 1895. By then, his railroad right-of-way is moving in the direction of Fort Lauderdale, today's Fort Lauderdale, and eventually Miami, and it enters Miami on April 13th, 1896, the rail does. Suddenly, Miami's connected to the outside world, if you will. That's where the godfather of Miami comes from. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past.
Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Flagler does extend his railroad to the new city, as Dr. George told us earlier. He refused to have the town named Flagler, Florida. Instead, it's called Miami after the river upon which the city was built. So you may be aware there is a Flagler County in Florida, the city of Flagler Beach, which is next to Ormond Beach. Uh, all of this on the Atlantic coast between San Augustine and Palm Beach, kind of close to Daytona. Flagler's friend John D. Rockefeller had a home called the Casements in Ormond Beach. He's the richest man in the world. He'd bounce around from Cleveland, New York, uh, the East Coast, and his, his Ormond home. But even occasionally being close to his great friend and co-founder of Standard Oil, Henry Flagler, was not enough to keep them friends. In fact, they had a pretty big falling out. Flagler changed so much after his move to Florida. He buys that big yacht, he's drinking, him and Mary are going to parties, he's got, you know, he's been divorced. All these things that the religious and pious John D. Rockefeller could never abide. Kevin Callahan takes us through the falling out, Standard Oil's original dynamic duo. John D. Um, uh, never drank, obviously, and lived a very abstemious life. Um, and uh, Henry Flagler also didn't drink and, and was of the same uh, nature. However, uh, later in life when he he's uh, with Mary Lily Kennan, they're, in, they're doing quite a bit of entertaining, and they, he has this new yacht. He builds this huge uh, Whitehall uh, mansion. Yeah, and he's living a wonderful life, and John D. doesn't go down to visit him anymore. Close relationships sort of uh, phrase, and it's just sad, but um, John D. saw the change and his old friend. Uh, he didn't like to see uh, anybody uh, showing off, uh, even his employees, if they made money. And he liked the people to, you know, to be, to hide their wealth and, and to see someone, um, you know, buy the yacht and the, have the, the big um, parties and whatnot. It just personally offended him. Flagler's East Coast Railroad continues moving south. The new town of Fort Lauderdale, as we discussed, it goes into the city of Miami in 1896. The train's bringing people and goods and building materials, and most importantly, tourists, to this new mysterious place, Florida. You take a Pullman car for 24 hours and get to Jacksonville or St. Augustine from New York. The rich had always vacationed in the Gilded Age in places like Newport, Rhode Island, Narragansett, Jersey Shore. They get out of the hot crowd city for a month or two. But the train and these resorts are popping up, and now vacation is becoming more possible for the middle class. Well, the upper middle class, anyways. But what it really does is it starts showing people the Sunshine State, creating those first snowbirds, these eastern businessmen that would start the land boom and the development of this swampy wilderness. But Flagler always had a dream to connect to Key West and connect that, that chain of islands with the rest of the United States by rail. The problem is the Florida Keys stretch some 120 miles from the south, southern end of Florida. It's a three-hour drive from Miami today. During the construction, men die. There's a three hurricanes that affected in like 1906-1910 they delayed the construction flagler was there in 1912 when they dedicated the final stop in key west he couldn't really see anymore he's in poor health he's in his early 80s but he made the trip from palm beach for this huge celebration and it was really his last major public appearance that's the father of modern florida some called the key west extension flagler's folly but it's such a technological and logistical accomplishment i can't even try to explain it properly so i'll just let dr paul george the florida historian try it was incredibly daunting you had at different times thousands of men working on it technologically it's you know it just boggles my mind how do you build a seven mile bridge between islands that comprise the florida keys 
Uh, how do you run a railroad over something like this? The bottom line is, in terms of profitability, that railroad, and this is maybe where the folly sets in, it probably didn't make money. And uh, with that killer hurricane of 1935, Labor Day weekend, uh, and the damage it did to the railroad and its right of way, that was the end of the railroad. And, and I don't think there was a great lament on the part of the FEC. It was now being taken over by other interests, including the DuPont interests. And they just didn't see it as a moneymaker, but as a technological feat and as a connection between the Keys and the mainland, which had never been done before, it was very, very important. And I think for Flagler, just based on what I've read, and again, his letters, uh, for Flagler, it was like his final achievement. And he wanted this for an achievement. He had all the money he needed, but he wanted to do something that the naysayers said you could never do. And in his old age, he was able to achieve it. It is said that when he arrived in his car, his private train car, the Rambler, I believe it was the beginning of the third week of January of 1912, he said, allegedly, my lifetime dream has been achieved, now I can die. And he died in May of 1913, about a, not even a year and a half later. Flagler's other great legacy was his great resort hotels, and he built many more. The Breakers in Palm Beach, the Royal Palm in Miami, the Alcazar in St. Augustine. There's more, and they changed tourism. They changed Florida forever. They were also helped out in prestige and notoriety by the number of presidents that visited Flagler's flagship, the Hotel Ponce de Leon in St. Augustine. Leslie Keyes has done such a wonderful job in historic preservation across the state, specifically at the Ponce, tells us about all the presidents who visited the hotel. Of course, I had to ask her about the Ohio presidents, and they were there a lot. Even President Grant visited St. Augustine, although he would die before the Ponce was finished by Flagler. Um, William McKinley came in 1895 when he was the governor of Ohio, so he hadn't yet run, but part of the reason he was there was to secure Henry Flagler's support for his presidency. FDR came in 1904 as a college kid on spring break with his mom. Uh, they had been to the Bahamas on a cruise and they came back through and stayed. And then he came back through in the 1920s on a yacht too. And that only becomes important because St. Augustine is a place that he agrees to pump a lot of money in during the depression to help it out. And he's familiar with it. Teddy Roosevelt, no friend to Standard Oil, that trust-busting president, but he actually came and stayed overnight in October of 1905. And this is a little bit of a fun story in that it's a winter resort, so it's not open in October. But knowing that this was the president, they actually brought all the staff up from Palm Beach that they could roust on the trains and set it all up and had a you know meal and set him up in the Flagler rooms. And the next day he left and they shut it all down and mothballed it again for the rest of the of the summer. William Howard Taft came in 1912 and um, that was kind of an awkward piece in that he was supposed to have gone earlier in the year to be present for the opening of the overseas railway, taking the FEC right, yeah. to Key West and for whatever political controversies were going on, he elected not to do that. So he did come to St. Augustine, he actually met the Flaglers over at the Hotel Alcazar, but they looked over across at the Ponce and he would have walked around. So we have him there. Um, Harding came 
for almost 20 years. He came starting in 1905. He selected his cabinet while he was there. There's lots of information about him. He played golf with Flagler's brother-in-law, who was William Rand Keenan Jr. Out of pictures of him, I want to say in January, he's been elected, but he has not yet been inaugurated. So, In case you missed it last year, we did an entire season on Ohio and the presidency. 13 episodes we researched great guests. Eight of them are about Ohio's presidents. Next month, we'll be at the official opening of the new Warren G. Harding Presidential Center and Museum in Marion, Ohio, 100 years after he's inaugurated. And those 100 years ago, he spent a month in Florida, mostly at the Ponce de Leon. He actually selected his cabinet there, and he played a lot of golf, as as Leslie Keyes indicated. After an event, he's approached by a man from Miami Beach on a yacht who wanted to take him to this new hip city in Florida called Miami. Carl Fisher convinced the president-elect to hop on his yacht, sail to his new boomtown. It was a publicity explosion that his new adult playground of Miami Beach really needed. A president golfing, sailing, enjoying the surf, Miami Beach was single-handedly the creation of Carl Fisher. A bombastic entrepreneur from Indianapolis, he built the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and he would build Miami. Miami-Dade County, which is home to nearly 3 million today, was a swampy, bug, and animal-infested hellhole when Carl Fisher arrived. But it's men like Fisher in Miami Beach and Merrick Garland and Coral Gables that would launch Florida into what Julia Tuttle and Henry Flagler had always dreamed. We asked Dr. George about the always entertaining developer, Carl Fisher. Fisher is an indescribable person, flamboyant as, as one major element of his personality. He was a man of motion, a man of action. He had grown up uh, by the time he reached his teens without a father. He took control of the family and its finances. He was one of the, the great salesmen in his late teens of bicycles. And he segues into automobiles in his 20s. And he creates Indianapolis Speedway. He has a major hand in the creation of the Lincoln Highway. He adored Abraham Lincoln. He has a major hand in the creation of the Dixie Highway, Lincoln, the Midwest with Southeast Florida. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. He comes down here uh, on his honeymoon, falls in love with the area and takes that great energy and decides to develop Miami, uh, gets into developing Miami Beach um, uh, in the 1910s, creates Lincoln Rose, a great promenade between his hotels on the bay side and his property on the ocean side and promotes it and promotes it. He's well connected with automobile manufacturers, you know, heavyweights in the automobile industry. And they begin to buy plots from him and build what becomes a millionaire's row on Miami Beach. And uh, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, his salesmanship was unbelievable. But, you know, he got ensnared, though, in alcohol and series of women and uh you know, it begins to bring them down physically and otherwise. Another big reason Miami and Florida boomed in the 1920s was its completely ignoring of the Volstead Act. The Congressional Act, which became the 18th Amendment and ushered in prohibition at the start of the 1920s, was just not enforced in most of Florida. Especially in Carl Fisher's Miami Beach, there weren't many speakeasies because they just weren't necessary. We studied prohibition, did an episode on why it was Ohio's fault. I think it was our second episode. Ohio vs. Booze back in 2017. You can go find that uh, on our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com, or just go to our page on EvergreenPodcast.com. All our past episodes are there. But we talked with Dr. Paul George about how important the free flow of alcohol was to Florida's 1920s explosion in population and tourism. Well, that was the whole point. Uh, Walter Clark, who was sheriff of Broward County for a long time, one county up in Dade, he said... Um, we give the tourists what they want. 
we we execute a liberal policy euphemism for hey it's wide open here we need tourists it's the chief engine of our economy and if you can provide them booze and gambling and everything else uh, we'll have more tourists. We happen to be located 50 miles away from Bimini. Uh, alcohol was legal there. Trafficking was legal there. And so we had this very close connection, uh, not just today's Miami-Dade County, but Broward County, Palm Beach County, and other places. And so we had a flood of booze coming in to the greater Miami and South Florida area during national prohibition. I mean, it was a joke. You just couldn't enforce it. Uh, it was hard to enforce it anywhere, but here, you know, commercially, it becomes a big part, I guess, of our economy at that time. Americans began streaming into Florida, and there's a number of reasons, but the biggest reason was the land boom and, and the fun and the sun. But following World War I, people had the time and money to invest in real estate, not to mention the growth of the automobile. People could travel inexpensively by car or on Flagler's Florida East Coast Railroad. Land speculation became the game in Florida, and in the 1920s, buying land cheap, selling the property, prices just kept rising and rising along with the stock market that sound familiar? The biggest practice was what we called binders. The binder boys, as they were called, mostly lived elsewhere. But you could get a binder or a piece of land for a couple hundred bucks with the rest due after like 30 days. But you'd sell the whole property in those 30 days and make a killing. There's commissions there to be made as well. A lot of times these land speculators never even saw the property they were buying. It was unregulated. It quickly got out of control. And a bubble was growing. It started with the Florida real estate market. We talked to Dr. Paul George from the History Miami Museum about the bubble in the sun. Well, it really is. And it's helped along by roads into Florida, Florida getting rid of by the early 1920s, inheritance tax, state income tax, a lot of promotion. I mean, these are some of the many aspects to it. You got a second rail line coming into South Florida, the Seaboard Airline Rail by the late 1920s. And the population just zoomed. The city of Miami's population in 1920, the city of Miami had the highest per capita increase of population of any city in the United States between 1910 with 5,500 people and 1920 with 29,600 plus people. But between 1920 and 1925, the peak of the boom, an unofficial population census in 1925 found about 150,000 people in Miami. Maybe we should say the Miami area. Uh, I'm gonna say in addition to the city, you've got these new places like Coral Gables, Miami Shores. So it just ratcheted up in Florida between 1920 and 1930, went from 968,000-plus to about 1,470,000-plus. Uh, so it went up by about a third in terms of population uh, during that time. And that was even after the downturn had set in in 1926. So you can see there was tremendous growth. Other boom areas were parts of Tampa, uh, St. Petersburg, Carl Fisher and men like George Merrick did was effectively market Florida. If you look at our cover for this episode, you see the type of sun and sex that sold the state to the Northeast and the Midwest. Some of these ad campaigns included billboards in Times Square, Boston, Chicago, placing articles in popular magazines and newspapers that Florida was like the next gold rush. Dr. George tells us about the power of advertising to the growth of the Sunshine State. It really was. And I think the advertising uh, that came out of George Merrick's Carl Gables 
where you Anderson and Roy Rice Miami Shores was so sophisticated. It was almost like surreal drawings to promote those areas, you know, an American Mediterranean, uh, castles in Spain. Uh, and that was the dominant style of architecture was the Mediterranean style barrel tile roofs, um, uh, rounded the windows, columns, uh, a textured stucco, you know, to put you in another place and time. And that's what some of the great promoters did. Those who had these Mediterranean style developments did. You got billboards in New York City by the mid-1920s advertising Greater Miami as a great haven for tourism. And you got sales offices of people like George Merrick who created Coral Gables in New York and Chicago. You know, they would put you on a train and bring you down. They had these buses going up to pick up people. They had sales offices in a lot of Northeastern cities. It, you know, it was ahead of its time. It's it was almost like a national campaign confined to primarily the Northeastern United States. Not everybody was profiting and thriving in 1920s Florida. The African-American community in Florida, which was large in numbers, did not share in the profits. The state was extremely segregated. And even worse, more so in the panhandle in rural Florida, lynchings were shockingly common. Rosewood on the Gulf Coast in January 1923 was the site of a massacre after a white woman claimed to have been attacked by a black man. Eight residents were killed. In Ocoa in 1920, 30 people, I think, were killed. That's the estimate when local African-Americans uh, attempted to vote. The Klan had a presence in 1920s Florida, as they did everywhere, really, in the United States. Dr. George calls it, you know, the 1920s, the worst period for the black experience in Florida since the end of slavery. Victimized by Jim Crow and by thuggish police, white policemen and their quarters and all that. It was part of the nadir of the black experience in Florida, the 1920s. In other words, that whole Jim Crow thing began to set in in the late 1880s, and it just became more streamlined and more oppressive as the early 1900s unfolded. They did not share in the prosperity. They were confined to a small disease-ridden area called Colored Town. Only by the early 20s was another neighborhood beginning to be developed slightly called Liberty City, which really wouldn't experience its greatest development until much later than that. And then there was the long-standing Black Bahamian neighborhood in Coconut Grove, sometimes referred to as the West Grove. And, uh, you know, these places had very substandard housing, uh, primarily outdoor plumbing, uh, bereft of, in the case of Colored Town, Miami's Black community, immediately north or contingent of downtown, did not even have a high school until 1927. That's 31 years after Miami had been incorporated as a city. So, you know, the, the, the benefits just weren't there. It's kind of like if you have young children like I do, and their question is, how could this have happened? Well, you know, to some degree, there's still a lot of that oppressiveness, as we know, and there's still an economic disparity uh, and an educational disparity between the races. But it was so horrendous then that a child of today would say, how can that be? A series of economic troubles began to all hit at the same time in 1925-1926 in Florida. After three, four, five years of boom, begins to bust. A ship sinks in the Miami Harbor and blocks all the traffic for, for weeks. Kind of like the, the ship The Ever Given that got stuck in the Suez. The press began writing a very bad stories about people getting fleeced, losing everything in this out-of-control land speculation. And the constant building finally slowed down. The influx is overburdening the railroad. They actually stopped bringing in building supplies for a time. We asked Dr. George about the reasons for how the boom starts and then turns to a bust. This land bubble would start setting off little hidden bombs in the entire financial system. 
the tracks were beaten up. The trains needed to be unloaded. They backed up close to five miles north of downtown with cargo. Uh, at one point, the city, uh, under supervision, let its uh, people, its incarcerated folks in jail, out to help unload those trains. Yeah. And uh, the FEC Railway, I guess, bought this Chamber of Commerce thing that this boom would go on forever. We better double track in some areas as we draw closer to downtown. So on August, I believe it was August 17th, the FEC Railway said, with the exception of critically needed supplies like ice and medicines, we're not going to bring down for the time being building supplies. Well, one of the things that makes a boom go is you've got to have a sort of a visual manifestation uh, supporting this constant rise in the price of real estate. And once that happens, and then the Prince of Aldemar, which yeah. was a ship that sunk in the Turn Basin in early January of 1926, and it stopped boats from bringing in, vessels from bringing in any more building materials. Once that happens, boy, you're in trouble. And then the Internal Revenue Service, I think it was called the Bureau of Internal Revenue, said, you know, there's so much speculation down there, it's completely out of control. What we're going to do is we're going to tax people selling property for the entire cost of that property, even though they haven't realized that revenue yet, it's going to be over time. We're going to tax you for that. Well, that sort of discouraged a lot of people from the speculation, the binder boys and whatever else was going on at the time. Uh, so those were some of the, and there was a lot of Northeastern cities, even as far over, you had Virginia, Ohio, Minnesota saying, you know, there's a there's almost like a rush on our banks. People right. withdrawing their funds to go down and speculate in Florida real estate. And again, it's not just Miami, it's St. Petersburg, it's parts of Tampa. I lived in Tallahassee for a long time going to Florida State. And I can remember some of the subdivisions that were built, you know, just looking at them, later understanding their design represented in a different era, looking at that and saying, these things were built in the 20s. Hey, it's part of the boom. Even though it's much slower in northern Florida, still it it pervaded different parts of the state. One thing you always got to worry about in August, September is hurricane season. And in September 1926, the big one hit and it hit directly into Miami. And as we discussed, the boom was already starting to slow. But when the great Miami hurricane of 1926 hits, everything changes. They called it the great Miami hurricane, a category four colossus that damaged or destroyed almost every building in boom time Miami. The pleasure yachts, steamers, and sailing ships that weren't sunk in the bay were left high and dry along the waterfront of the new downtown that had just risen in the frenzy of the Roaring Twenties. Surge and wind pounded Miami Beach, demolishing buildings near the ocean and spreading seawater across the island. If another storm like the Great Miami Hurricane were to hit South Florida, it would be by far the most expensive natural disaster ever with a price tag estimated above $150 billion, more than three times the cost of another Andrew if it happened again today. Well, let's put it this way. If Andrew had hit, his, if its eye had hit where the Hurricane of 26 did, we would, in the minds of an insurance executive I took along with some other guys for a tour of Coconut Grove about 20 years ago, in his mind's eye, it would have wiped out many insurers. The damage would have been so great because the eye of the the great West Indian hurricane, it had different names, it didn't have formal names at that time, like later hurricanes. The eye passed over Miami Beach and then eerie light, it moved west across what becomes the MacArthur Causeway. It was a county causeway at the time. 
and it smashes a portion of downtown, then heads all the way west and smashes a portion of what we call the northern gables, the northern coral gables, then it's out into the hinterland, into the Everglades and what have you. It was incredibly destructive. It was not only physically destructive, but psychologically. It just rang a bell. Uh, the, the boom, as far as I'm concerned, was already over this time. Uh, but this was the final nail in the coffin. And I mean, it left this place literally and figuratively dazed. The common mythology has been the hurricane killed the boom. The reality is the boom was over before yeah. the hurricane. But the hurricane physically and psychologically, first of all, physically, it, it put thousands of people out of their housing, whether it be apartments or whatever. And psychologically, the north, uh, the usual source of visitors said, well, that place might be cursed. I'm not sure I want to go back down there. And so the city was scrambling in the aftermath, and the area was scrambling in the aftermath. And even it beat up Fort Lauderdale in Broward County. You know, it's, it's, it was broad. Carl Fisher was up uh, in New York at the time, starting to play around with Montauk Point. What he saw in the New York Daily News was um, a headline that said that Miami Beach was submerged. It was lethal. It, 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 you know, it showed the vulnerability of an area that was blessed by sun and fun and water, but what could happen to it? And it was a preview 100 years earlier of what's happened with rising waters yeah. uh, around today's Miami Beach and parts of greater Miami on the Bay. Nobody typified the boom and bust of Florida in the 1920s like Carl Fisher. And he was, after the hurricane and a number of his other developments go south and people stop buying and there's defaults and it's it's all bad. There's a great American experience PBS film called Mr. Miami Beach about Carl Fisher. Dr. Paul George helped work on that it's from many years ago, but it's just a fantastic film. I suggest you go find it. But we talk with Paul George about what happens to Carl Fisher. He's, he's always restless and he feels like he's done his stuff in Miami and Miami Beach by the late 20s. He now invests in Montauk Point on Long Island and his holdings there were many times more than they were in Miami Beach. And he puts his property on sale circa 1929. The stock market crash comes and, you know, he ends up not destitute, but uh, without much money. He dies cirrhosis of the liver on Miami Beach in an apartment after he had these grandiose homes in 1939, but was recognized instantly as a larger-than-life figure. With the stock market crash in 1929, Florida takes it hard. Florida had already started slowing down uh, years before. Many believe that it was actually part of that Great Depression helped spark it. But tourism slows. And we talk with, with Paul George about just how hard the Florida that Henry Flagler and men like Carl Fisher had built and how it slides in the late 1920s and 1930s. We've been a boom bust state throughout that time. And if you look at Miami and South Florida, uh, I, I once did a research project and wrote something about boom bust. And I think I found between 1896, Miami was incorporated and the early 2000s, I think I found eight boom and bust periods <laughs> in the area's history. Uh, but you know, Florida has always been a state that's, that's looked to other people to help keep it afloat financially we weren't really an industrial state when industry was the way most people realize their their wealth or their jobs or their salaries and so you know we we, we looked at real estate and we looked at tourism 
to try to buoy the state's economic situation. The most serious recession in decades. And that means life, as most Americans know it, is about to change, in some cases dramatically. We've had an eight-day losing streak in the Dow that in percentage terms puts it on par, close to the loss suffered in that crash in 1987, close to that percentage loss those two days in 1929. The market is not functioning properly. There has been a widespread loss of confidence, and major sectors of America's financial system are at risk of shutting down. And ultimately, our country could experience a long and painful recession. What started in America last year has now spread to every part of the world. I believe the Florida real estate market played a key role in the start of the Great Depression, and it clearly played a major role in the Great Recession of 2008. In both crashes, you see the Florida real estate market going under a few years before the actual economic disaster. We talked with Paul George about how Florida was involved in that and their role in the subprime mortgage crisis. We did get crazy from roughly 2002 through 2005, and then we hit the skids by 2006, 2007, and then, of course, the great crash of 2008 subprime mortgages. I mean, Florida personified that more than anything else. That helped the feed booms in different communities. But it's amazing in that we instituted another boom in 2012 that to some degree is still going on and we can form today, nine years later. And you can see it on the Bayfront of Miami. You can see it in downtown Fort Lauderdale and in other areas of Florida. It's just uh, Tampa. It's just crazy. Um, even during the pandemic, the, the building did not abate on some of the major projects in Miami and South Florida during the pandemic. Housing prices are exploding today, and it's very possible another bubble is being built. And that's happening in Florida for sure. Florida, one of the three biggest states in the, in the country. And as we leave you today, we want you to think about, you know, Henry Flagler and the swampy wilderness that he builds his Florida East Coast Railroad on, and how it's slowly the development of Florida turns into the state that it is today, and the economic powerhouse that it remains. Today with Paul George to talk about how important Florida has become to the national economy and really to the economy of the entire world. We have been on the cutting edge, and now it's even more consequential because we're the third largest state in the country. I mean, you know, we've got 21 and a half million people now. Yeah. Uh, we went from being the smallest state in 1900 in the American South and less than 2 million people in 1940 to this huge state. Last time I looked, we had the 16th largest economy in the world uh, to show you how this place has grown. book recommendation is Christopher Knowlton's Bubble in the Sun, released in January 2020. We read it when we were on the beach in Marco Island earlier this year. It takes an in-depth look at the spectacular Florida land boom in the 1920s we discussed, and he really successfully argues and convinces me how that led directly to the Great Depression. But a really fun book. He looks at people like Flagler and Carl Fisher, George Merrick, and Coral Gables. If you have any interest in Florida history, a lot of the stuff we talked about today is covered much more in depth. Uh, Christopher Knowlton, a, a great author. So pick that up again, Bubble in the Sun. We've got a link in the show notes for that. That'll do it for today. We'll be back in two weeks, and we'll be talking about the Philippine-American War, the Great Forgotten War, the first guerrilla war in Asia. So we think about these events in Afghanistan. It really started America's nation-building in the Philippines at the turn of the century in the 1900s. We've got some great guests lined up for that, and, and really to talk about a war that I knew nothing about. 
uh, and that helped shape the America that we would see in the 20th century. Thanks again for joining us. If you have any friends that are live in Florida or Florida uh, fans, make sure you send them this episode. And you can follow us, like I said, on Facebook, our Instagram, and we're on Twitter at, at OhioVTheWorld. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.